All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Wednesday morning show for you today. First things first, though, I want to say a major thanks to all the listeners for the amazing day we had yesterday, the uh, CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day. Yesterday was just incredible. $1.5 million raised by CKNW listeners yesterday. That was awesome, and it means a lot to the kids and the families who depend on it. Thank you for that. All right, let's talk about the continuing state of emergency in our province right now. More rain on the way, we're told, and we still have several key BC highways closed in places or restricted to essential travel. Let's check in with the Transportation Minister now, Rob Fleming. Appreciate his time today. Minister, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you, Mike. Good morning to you. Okay, good morning to you. Let's start with uh, the update on some of the major highways that are still shut. What about Highway mm-hmm. 1 is what is the key one that a lot of people wonder about. Can you give us an update on that? Yeah, Highway 1 through the Fraser Valley um, is is closed at, at Sumas, and that's really related to the efforts to uh, maintain pumps and get water uh, uh to the Sumas, to the Fraser River. Uh, so um, we have tiger dams there to protect it, though, so that we can reopen uh, as soon as possible. So the, 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 the installations we put in there, uh, and we had crews working till 4.15 in the morning the other night, um, uh, are working. They're holding back the water, but uh, we can't reopen it right now because they, they go across the highway the, the way they're wow. assembled. When do you think and that? Then, and then further up at uh, yeah. Popcomb towards Hope, uh, the Jones um, Lake Reservoir, BC Hydro facility was spilling substantial amounts of water, and that remains closed because the highway at that section is underwater. Don't have an update on when that might clear, but um, generally speaking, you know, we had rains overnight all over the province. Um, we're going to need a little bit of reprieve here just to see if water can recede and uh, we'll update the public on when highway one might be usable again what, what's your best case scenario there do you think we get this open by the end of the week or no um maybe through the fraser valley i'm not sure about popkin yeah. i'll have to uh i'll have to rely on uh, the geotechnicians that are on the ground there but um you know some of the things that we announced last night we put a travel advisory out on highway 20 up in the bella coola valley there was significant rains overnight. Um, no issues to report this morning. Maybe just some minor debris. Uh, we have had a slide this morning, and this just speaks to the saturation of the ground everywhere. We had a, we had uh, a slide on Highway Seven, which of course is critical to link up to the number three. So um, that uh, that is being removed uh, as we speak to get Highway Seven back up and running. Speaking of BC Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, how about travel on the roads? How well are goods uh, moving through the province right now? Well, considering how pinched things are and reduced options uh, and the loss of the number five Coquihalla, they're they're running fairly well. We've had probably by now forty five hundred to five thousand trucks get through Highway Three, and that's that's with some you know closures on certain days that have happened since we reopened that. Yeah. Uh, and we've had <clears throat> my my update uh, as of late Monday uh, was that 1,200 trucks have taken advantage of this in-transit route through the United States to get back into the interior in the Okanagan, leaving the lower mainland. So that that border exemption program for, for truckers that don't normally drive into the United States seems to be helping as well with the volume of trucks getting through. 
Okay, I'll and, be speaking. And of course, CP uh, Rail has been incredibly yeah. important, Mike, as, you, as, as we've talked about on your show. I'll be speaking to the head of the BC Trucking Association on the show today, and Highway 3 has just become kind of a, a critical uh, route right now. And yeah. what, what are the rules there on travel on that particular highway? Is that just trucks only? Like, how is that being enforced? Yeah, unless, unless you were stranded by, you know, some of the storm events and you, you have a primary resident, residence where you're trying to get to uh that's deemed essential but yeah trucks are the priority that's a critically important supply chain right now how is the enforcement being done on that like are people being stopped like you know if if you're traveling back to a primary residence or whatever are people being asked to show id to prove that or how does that work yeah there has been there has been um rcmp uh presence uh, significant patrols so we were you know around the opening of it um stopping people um, we also have, uh, our CVSE, uh, um, patrol out there as well. So, uh, the commercial vehicle safety enforcement units are there. And then, and then we have, we have work crews all over the place. That's one of the reasons why drivers need to, uh, drive really slowly is that, uh, we're repairing the highway as we keep it open. Yeah. What would you say to people who are looking ahead to, uh, like a holiday season coming up and thinking about traveling to be with loved ones in the interior or whatever? Would you, would you encourage them not to travel, cancel plans, or it's going to be okay to travel to reunite with family? I would encourage them to, to, you know, keep a, a very active eye on, on what routes are remaining open. We hope to get a period where we can dry out a little bit here. The 99, um, will reopen. Uh, we hope to get Highway 1 reopened at least to hope. Um, the number three, uh, for now is going to be prioritized as a commercial truck route. And I can't tell you when that may change. No. Um, but I do know that some of these small regional airlines and national branded airlines are, are doing all kinds of flight deals, um, recognizing that air travel is, is a lot faster. And, uh, if they're yeah. putting a, you know, packages together, that are affordable for your family. You might consider that as well. Speaking of Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, the fuel restrictions in the province have been extended. How long do you think that will be in place? Uh, we hope not until the end of that order, uh, which is uh, 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 two weeks from now, just under two weeks. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, it could be that long. I think uh, it really depends on Trans Mountain when its pipeline is fully inspected and operational. Uh, when they've, it, it, it's been exposed to the elements just like highway infrastructure, so it it needs to be inspected for safety and covered over again. And uh, I know they're working really hard and they have extensive crew out there working alongside us on Highway Five, and um, you know uh, that supplies the refinery. But we have got significant supply. Like it, there, there are no dire shortages we just yeah. need to be careful and ration it at 30 liters i think it's been pretty orderly the anecdotes i'm getting is that the queuing at gas station isn't, isn't a thing right now people are doing the right thing they're conserving their fuel and uh, we got through the first week pretty well and we're just going to have to urge british Columbians to in this part of the province where there are the restrictions to keep doing what they're doing the, the trans mountain pipeline continues to be I don't know, a bit of a mystery to me to try and figure out when how, when that's going to restart. We've been trying to get a spokesperson here on the show without any success. Like, have you been in, in direct contact with the people at Trans Mountain? And what's your understanding of when that pipeline could start operating again? Yeah, a number of ministries are, are talking to Trans Mountain. Um, I, would, I would suspect daily. 
<clears throat> I, I've certainly talked to the company representatives uh, last week. Um, you know, you can put a lot of pressure on them to give you a firm date, but the reality is they, they have to operate this pipeline safely and do what they think is right um, to to restart it um, safely, and, and, and nobody's going to argue with that. So I think um, the fuel suppliers and the U.S. western states have been barging fuel up here, and the fuel arriving that's already refined from Alberta is uh, is serving us well right now, um, but we You're- we have to keep the restrictions in place, and we'll we'll see. I'll let the company speak for themselves on what what they feel is a, a realistic update, and, and and you know they're on the ground uh, doing the work they need to do. Minister, your your friend over in the Liberal Party, uh, Peter Millibar, uh, Liberal MLA. Uh, I just looked down at my phone. He just sent me a text message here, and he he says. Uh, uh, Rob Fleming is out of touch. The airlines are jacking up airfares huge for flights inside of BC. They aren't making deals for people. How do you? What do you say to that? Well, then we'll uh, we we have under the Emergency Act uh, the ability to restrict prices. Um, that would be federal jurisdiction. Um, you know that shouldn't be happening. And certainly the presidents of companies like Swoop and other airlines have uh, have been saying that. Uh, they're switching their business model. There is no business travel right now. Wide-body aircraft aren't being used in in Canada very much. They're switching to regional service. So I think uh, as the market uh, begins to compete and offer more uh, service, you're going to see uh, prices that are attractive to people. Uh, do you have a 11.30 update today? Is that scheduled today? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Okay. Minister Farnworth and I will be uh, updating the province on uh, some of the issues that we've been talking about and the, the latest on the state of our highways and transportation networks. Okay, I look forward to that. Minister, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Okay, Mike, thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about inflation in Canada right now. Whose fault is it? Everyone's heard of inflation. Have you heard of just inflation? They have certainly heard that in the House of Commons. Have a listen to this here now. This is Conservative MP Pierre Poiliev. Uh, talking to the Prime Minister in question period the other day. Here's what it sounded like. The cost of government is driving up the cost of living. Almost a half a trillion dollars of inflationist liberal deficits mean more dollars chasing fewer goods, driving higher prices. But the Prime Minister says he doesn't think much about monetary policy. Clearly. Uh, That's no surprise. After all, it's just inflation. (laughs) Given that housing and gas prices are up by a third, has he had time since he got off the surfboard to think a little bit more about monetary policy? Okay, conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev in the House of Commons the other day, and Pierre Polyev joins me now. Hi, thanks for coming on once again. Great to be with you. Okay, really going after the Prime Minister here and the Liberal government here on inflation. Can you make the case here for what you call just inflation? How is this his fault? Well, inflation is everywhere and always the result of too many dollars chasing too few goods. And Trudeau has unleashed a half trillion dollars of deficits in the last two years. Uh, And those dollars are bidding up the price of scarce goods and making life more expensive for Canadians. The amount of dollars in circulation in Canada in bills, coins, and bank accounts is up uh, by almost a a half a trillion dollars. Uh, And uh, when you have more money chasing fewer goods, you have higher prices. Now, Trudeau will say he had to spend all that money during COVID. Well, it's true we had to spend some money, but we didn't have to have the biggest 
deficit of all the G20 countries. They all had COVID, too, nor did we have to pay CERB checks to people even for a year after the economy was reopened and uh, there was half a million vacant jobs, nor did we have to give CERB checks to prisoners, suspected fraudsters and organized criminals or pay wage subsidies to uh, large corporations that had so much money that they were already paying out dividends and bonuses to their executives. All of those things were choices that Trudeau made with other people's money that COVID did not force upon him. And now we're all paying the price as those dollars are bidding up goods and driving 20-year highs in inflation. Okay, the inflation rate right now, according to some of the recent numbers, 4.7% in Canada, very high. Uh, Let me play a clip here of the Prime Minister responding to your question in the House of Commons the other day. And here's what he had to say to you, and then get your thoughts on the other side here. So here's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I am impressed to see the high esteem in which the member from Carleton seems to hold me that I was able to create a global inflation crisis with our initiatives to support Canadians through this pandemic. Because that's exactly what he is saying. Everywhere in the world, they are seeing record high inflation. Okay, so he's basically saying, well, this is not a made in Canada thing. There's inflation going on all around the world. So you can't blame it on him. What do you say to that? Well, there's inflation everywhere in the world where governments are doing the same stupid things that he's doing. Uh, Those governments that are printing lots of cash and running mega deficits have high inflation. Those governments that are not printing money have low inflation, and I can prove it. Uh, He's he's factually wrong when he says the whole world has record inflation. Uh, In fact, uh, Singapore, Switzerland, South Korea, India, China, Australia, the Netherlands, Italy... France, the UK, and countless other countries have significantly lower inflation than we do. In fact, Japan has deflation. Their prices are actually dropping. Now, why are these countries uh, experiencing little to no inflation? Because they did not print money and run Uh, monstrous deficits in order to fund their government programs. Uh, So their customers are insulated from the inflation we're paying here at home. Well, what about the Eurozone report just out from the European Central Bank that said their inflation for the last month just came in at 4.9%, which is higher than the inflation rate in Canada? So, you know, how... Two things, two things to that. One, our November numbers are not out yet. Uh, in October, our most recent Canadian publication is for October, and uh, we were higher than the Eurozone in October. So we'll see what Canada's rate is in November, then we can accurately compare it uh, to the most recent uh, Eurozone numbers. Uh, so, uh, but let me be clear, the European yeah. Union has engaged in the same reckless uh, overspending and money printing as Justin Trudeau. Obviously, not quite as badly, but they have done it. And that was not necessary, as we have seen. Yeah. Uh, countries like Switzerland, for example, which is not part of the Eurozone, even though it's in Europe, uh, they have their own currency. They didn't print money. And that's why their inflation has been about 1.2% rather than the nearly 5% we see in other socialist jurisdictions like Europe uh, and Trudeau's Canada. Okay, speaking to Conservative MP Pierre Poliev, he is the official opposition finance critic in the House of Commons. So, I, I mean, if we're going to make the argument that this is this is Trudeau's fault, that it's just inflation is what we have in Canada because they've they've overspent. So, I mean, what the Trudeau government spent what over what two hundred and forty billion dollars or, or more fighting COVID? 
It's probably more than that, right? Like, how? So you're saying they spent too much? Well, well yeah, abs- absolutely, they spent too much. How much should they have spent? Well, they actually their deficits will amount to nearly five hundred billion dollars in two years. Uh, it is when you consider that, and that was about, uh, for example, in the first year of COVID, we had a deficit of sixteen percent of GDP. The G twenty average was about 8% of GDP. So those other countries had COVID too, but they managed to have deficits that in relative terms were half the size. Cases they had better well, outcomes and lower unemployment than Canada. Uh, so the big de- big spending, big deficit, poor economic and health outcomes. Uh, and uh, so we paid the both ways. What would you have not spent, though? I mean, if the Conservatives were in power and you're saying that the Conservatives would have spent less money in COVID relief, like what programs would you have cut? Well, I would have stopped sending out CERB checks once there was a half million vacant jobs and uh, the economy had reopened, for example. So you're going to. How much would that that have saved, though? Oh, tens of billions of dollars. And it created tens of billions of revenues by having people working. Rather than collecting, sir, there were well, there were help wanted signs up all around their neighborhoods. There's a million vacant jobs in Canada now. We've never seen that before, and yet government continues to pay people not to work. Why not change from government checks to paychecks? Paychecks that generate tax revenues, reduce the deficit, supply goods and services, and reduce inflation. But you've got, I mean, you've got a situation where. You know, Trudeau's Trudeau's defenders will say, well, it's not just government spending that's driving inflation. I mean, there's there's been supply chain bottlenecks and supply chain crises all around the world that's driving a lot of it, too. Well, that's a very interesting point. So let's let's test that out. Let's consider let's consider a product that has no supply chain and ask whether it has experienced inflation, land, raw unaltered land does not have a supply chain. It doesn't come on a ship. It isn't stuck at a port. It doesn't even need workers. It's just sitting beneath our feet. Land prices have gone up by 20% in one year, meaning land price inflation has been four times higher than the overall inflation rate. So if it were really just supply chains, then you would expect land would not have inflated at all. In fact, Land price and real estate price inflation has been higher than almost any other form of inflation in our economy, even though it's not reliant on a supply chain. And that's why so many young people can't afford a house. Pierre Proliev, thanks a lot for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Great to be with you. All right. Conservative MP Pierre Proliev there. He's the conservative finance critic in the House of Commons making the case for what he, what he calls just inflation. This is the Trudeau government that's created the inflation crisis in Canada. Let's check in quickly here with Kevin Milligan, economics professor at UBC. Kevin, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Happy to talk to you. Thanks a lot. I know you heard that interview there. Are you buying this argument? This is Trudeau's fault? You know, um, we could have a debate on each and every one of those numbers that Mr. Polyev put out, but I really don't think that's helpful to have a big numbers fight right now in which country is a bit higher than Canada and which country is a bit lower. Because what I want to hear from our members of parliament is what actions we should take going forward to help out with this inflation problem that is clearly hitting Canadians from coast to coast. And I think there are some clear things that the MPs in Parliament could be asking the finance minister that they're not doing when they're spending a lot of time doing theater and making funny hashtags on Twitter. (laughs) I think there are some clear and concrete things they could be asking.
Well, I guess the argument he's making is that the government has overspent. They've overcompensated for the pandemic. They spent too much money. The deficits are too large, and that's fueling fueling the inflation in Canada. Are, you're not buying that? So I don't buy that. I, I, uh-huh. What I see is that the biggest components of the inflation that we're seeing are coming from two things. One is the commodity prices. Until, until last week, the oil prices were going up. The gas prices at, at the pump were going up. And secondly, as you mentioned, the supply yeah. chain issues are big. Obviously, that doesn't hit land, but that's only one part of uh, the basket of goods that's in inflation. Most of the problem is driven by those commodity prices and by the supply chain issues. And so, again, on those fronts, there are concrete things that the MPs in Parliament could be putting pressure on the finance minister. And I have some ideas of what those could be, and I'd love to share them with you. Welcome back to the show as we continue talking about inflation in Canada. Is it really Justin Trudeau's fault? That's what Pierre Proliev says, the Conservative MP, uh, their finance critic. You heard my conversation there with him. Speaking now to Kevin Milligan, Professor of Economics at UBC. Phone me on the open line in this one, 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. Kevin, just before we take a call here, so your thought, you were saying before the break, you've got some ideas on how, how government and MPs should be responding to inflation in Canada. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, Mr. Paul, you have sure is entertaining, but you know, if I want entertainment, I go to Netflix. If I want, what we want our MPs to do is to hold the government's uh, feet to the fire on inflation, which is an important issue. So there's two easy, quick things that the members on the opposition side should be asking the finance minister. Number one, we ought to be convening a task force. You should have the transport minister, should have the trade minister, should have people from the ports. They've got to get together, get in a room, and help this supply chain crisis. That's what we need yeah. to do to unlock the supply chain. Number two, on the finance minister's desk today is renewing the Bank of Canada's mandate. Every five years, the finance minister sends the bank a letter telling them what they ought to focus on. And what I want to know is, what is going to be in that letter? They're supposed to have it out by the end of this year. There's only 30 days left. What's going to be in that letter? What I think ought to be in that letter is to tell the Bank of Canada, your job number one is inflation. Point for now, get it done. And what what should the Bank of Canada do? The Bank of Canada should focus on inflation and make sure that all Canadians know that that is what they're going to be doing over the next couple of years, is to make sure that inflation stays under control. So what, what, raise interest rates? Well, that's the thing right now. I don't think raising interest rates right now is the solution, right? That's not going to get the ports in Long Beach, California unlocked. That's not going to get more container ships going across the Pacific. So I don't think raising interest rates right now is the thing to do. But what they need to do is to assure Canadians that they are on the job and that when the time is necessary for that to happen, they will hit the button. Okay. All right. Let's uh, squeeze a couple calls in here. Casey calling from Vancouver Island. Go ahead, Casey. Hi, Mike. It's good to call you. I haven't called in a long time, but, uh, you know, uh, just inflation. There's some justification for the uh, comment by the uh, previous uh, guest, but also the cost of energy. You know, that's driving the cost of everything you and I touch up. We saw this yeah. in the uh, late 70s leading into the 80s. You know, and then we also have the regulatory problem as it relates to, for example, specifically housing, like, and, and, and the stuff that the cities do that frustrate uh, the developers and people who want to develop more affordable housing. And, you know, I'm sort of in that market. Uh, it's very frustrating. So okay. these are all inflationary factors. Okay, Casey, thank you for the call. Well, he, he raised a, a couple of points that, that you mentioned. 
uh, earlier, Kevin, on energy and real estate prices. So, I mean, is there blame to be spread around on that? Can you, you can't pin it directly on the feds on that? Well, I, I, Casey, I think is hit the nail on the head in two things. On the, on the energy prices, you know, we kind of watch out because those things can be volatile. They've certainly risen a lot over the past few months, but then in the past week they've gone back down. And so that one tends to go up and down a lot. And so you want to be careful about, you know, raising interest rates in January for a problem we had back in November. Um, so that's on energy. On the housing prices, that is something that all levels of government have a lot of say on. The local governments do the zoning. Provincial governments can certainly lean heavily on the local governments to move, move those zoning in a way that allows us to get new stuff built. And the federal government can come to the plate. They've offered a bunch of things in the platforms that we saw in the election campaign to try to you know, push forward uh, local governments and provincial governments to Correct. let us build some more stuff, let us build yeah. some more housing so that we can get affordability back where it needs to be for Canadians. I'll squeeze in one more call here. Chris on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Chris. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Hi, Kevin. Um, hey. Well, this is what the Liberals are known to do is just spend, spend, spend. We now own a, uh, airlines and we also own a pipeline. So yeah. there it goes. just shows you right there what they, uh, what they do. Okay, Chris, thank you for the call. 30 seconds, Kevin, are the deficits too high? You know, the deficits were certainly high in, you know, 2020, 2021, but we're going to hear in the next week or two from the finance minister of the fall fiscal update. And my guess is the deficit situation is actually going to look a bit better than we expected. We saw that provincially in B.C., in Alberta, in Ontario, and in Quebec, and I expect we'll see the same thing federally. Thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. My my pleasure. Thanks. Uh, uh all right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk Christmas trees now. Are you in the market for a real Christmas tree this year? Well, according to the Canadian Christmas Trees Association, oh, watch out. There could be a shortage this year. Why? Well, you got, think about it. We've had the heat dome, the wildfires, and now the flooding. It's all had an impact on the BC Christmas tree supply. Have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Kristen Robinson. The Canadian Christmas Trees Association says there's a supply shortage across North America, driven by increased demand during the pandemic. But the odds are also stacked against growers and sellers in the Pacific Northwest. Unfortunately, B.C. has been hit very hard this year with weather extremes. The summer heat dome and now a flooding disaster. For 10 years... You know, you have nurtured those trees, and then for this to happen, it is it is devastating. Okay, let's discuss now with the Christmas tree expert, Mike Gogo. He's the owner of Gogo's Christmas Tree Farm in Nanaimo. Hi, Mike. How you doing? I hope you're wearing your mask. I can't talk to you over the phone unless you're wearing a mask. Okay, no, it's okay. I'm not wearing a mask right now, Mike. Just kidding, son. Okay, Mike, what's going on in the Christmas tree market right now? Is there a shortage? Absolutely there is. Now, this year, uh, we've been in it, well, by the way, this is our 92nd year. We started in 1929, and they've got the fifth generation working on the farm. But this year, early in the year, just to make sure that I had a backup, I talked to 31 growers in Washington and Oregon, and only one could tell me that they could supply me with trees if I needed it, and they couldn't confirm it till November. So I rely on my own stuff, and good God, we got them all. We got enough to do it and looking great for next year. But here's the thing about Christmas trees. If you want to grow some, A, you need to buy an appreciable piece of fertile land, say 80 acres minimum. B, you have to wait eight or nine years for your first payday. So people aren't really lined up to sign up for that situation, are they? 
Yeah, right. Okay, so your Christmas tree crop this year is looking okay? 100%. Okay. Okay. What, how much is a Christmas tree go for these days? Like, are prices up? Like, we heard in that report that demand is up, supply is lower. Does that mean the prices are going higher? Well, they are. But here on the farm, when we sell about 5,000 U-cuts a year, people come to the gate, they get greeted, they get some nice high-end Swiss chocolate, they get a nice sharp saw, they can cut any tree of any species of any height for $35. And up until last year, it was $30. And we'd like it so that everybody can come out and get a tree. We don't want it so that families, a lot of them have had a really bad year with the COVID and the layoffs and all that kind of stuff. We don't want anybody saying we can't afford it this year. We don't want any little sad faces. And in fact, if they're single parents and they've had a really bad year, a single parent, we will give them a free tree. And we've done that for many, many years. Well, that's very nice. Now, let me ask you about the prices elsewhere. I mean, that sounds like a good deal at your place there in Nanaimo for sure. Um, I went and got a Christmas tree last weekend at a local nursery, and I paid $98 for a Christmas tree, and it was one of the cheaper ones on the lot. Now, I looked at some other ones that were like fancier-looking trees. I can't remember the specific species of tree. I mean, they were, they were nice-looking trees, no doubt. But man, oh man, some of them were like, I, I swear to God, they, were, they had $200 Christmas trees there. Well, you know what? As a grower, and don't forget, this is our 92nd year, and the person that first started pruning Christmas trees was a man named Barney Douglas. He also invented the barbless blackberry, and he was a wonderful man that lived in Hillsborough, Oregon. And he always said that he started pruning there in 1956. He was the first person to start cultivating Christmas trees instead of being wild. He said, you know, we've got to supply a nice nice, fresh tree to the public at a reasonable price. Otherwise, we're just going to end up cutting our own throats. And uh, he was right. And I just, it really bothers me. It actually pisses me off, if I'm allowed to say that, that people do that gouging. I hate it. It's the same way also with the sawmill business. And the price of wood went sky high. And there was a terrible amount of gouging. We didn't do that. I hate it when people do that. There's no, no reason to do that. No Where reason. Do- I, know that I know that they are not paying any more than maybe 5% more buying it from the farmers. Okay, well, there was no way I was going to spend 200 bucks for a Christmas tree. I mean, I don't know. Maybe some people, maybe some people might. Everybody's different. Speaking to Mike Gogo, he's the owner of Gogo's Christmas Tree Farm in Nanaimo. Uh, the trees that are sold typically across British Columbia, are most of them grown in BC or are we still getting a lot of trees from like Oregon? And elsewhere. Approximately 80% or more of the trees that are sold in the Vancouver area are from Washington and Oregon. Wow, really? Why is that? Well, there's two reasons. One of them is, like I say, nobody wants to start buying a big piece of property with expensive land on the main, lower mainland and the island. They don't want to do that and line up, wait eight years for their first payday and hope they don't get a drought or a fire and burn it all out. So in Washington, Oregon, also, the soil is much better there. Like, you go down to Oregon and you can put your plow a foot deep in the ground, a beautiful brown fertile soil will roll up over the plowshare. But if you do that in Vancouver Island or uh, some places around here, you're going to hit a rock and you're going to go flying over the radiator. So consequently, that soil down there will grow a really nice tree in about five years. Here, it takes about eight to ten years because we're cooler and the soil doesn't have a nutrient. Okay, very interesting. Now, you mentioned that you had checked in with some pl- some suppliers down in Oregon, and are they having a rough time of it down there right now? 
No, no, it's just that okay. everything's cyclical. You know, I like uh, I said, I've been in this business for so long. I had my first retail lot when I was 15. And, you know, uh, I've seen it down there years ago where I could buy a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful balsam tree, eight feet high, $3 on the stump. Wow. And I was bringing them up here and selling them to grocery stores. And so you get where everybody thinks they're going to make a killing now with the price they're high. They all start planting. And, of course, eight years later, there's a flood of the market. It's everything cyclical you know yeah okay let me ask you a few christmas tree tips here mike because because you're the expert here now when you bring a christmas tree home or let's say you go and buy a christmas tree at a grocery store parking lot or whatever should you ask the guy to cut like one inch off the bottom of the the stem of that tree or should you do that yourself when you get home just before you put it in some water the University of Washington did a huge study on this many years ago, and you've got to do it yourself. You've got to take one full inch off the base just before. When I say just before, I mean it. Like if you did it an hour before, it wouldn't do any good. Because when people get cut, they cauterize. When trees get cut, they cauterize. The pitch comes out of the butt. So if you put it immediately, the tree will draw water like crazy. You'll never believe how much water that tree sucks up its stem that day and the next day. Just do not repeat do not let it go dry cut one full inch off minutes before you put it in there immerse in water and then keep it in there keep that water in there for a couple of days and then it'll start gaining um, you know it'll suck the water up again that's so important and also the trees that come up here from the united states and i i'm not trying to badmouth them because i've got a ton of friends down there and i've known them for 40 years but you know they're cut away ahead and uh it's they're just too dry that's why i was glad i didn't have to bring any in this year because we've got trees tomorrow going to victoria salt spring island gabriel island Parksville, Duncan, and all those trees, all of them are cut one day before we ship them. Nice. Now, you mentioned uh, make sure that wa- you keep the tree well watered, because, and, and it is surprising how much water a Christmas tree will suck up for sure. Like, I'm checking mine pretty much on a, on a daily basis, just checking to make sure if it needs to be full up. Like, what happens if you neglect that? Well, they, what happens, they go dry, and then the tree develops an airlock. Because the pitch comes out, and then there's, it seals over, and then there's no way that uh, water can go up the stem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need you need to keep uh, keep a close eye on that. Where do you stand on the sort of Chris, real Christmas tree versus artificial Christmas tree debate? I mean, obviously you're in the real tree business. Well, but- I look at it. I look at it mathematically. If you buy a really nice. A manufactured Christmas tree, first of all, that's all made from oil, so that's, uh, you know, not yeah. the greatest thing for the environment. It, it, uh, you pick it up year after year, and after three or four years, it looks pretty uh, worn. And say you paid $350 for that. Well, if you buy one of my fresh trees, which, is, you know, the, let's face it, a plastic tree doesn't give a much scent. So you buy a nice fresh tree for $35. That's one-tenth the price of the $350 artificial tree, and you've got, you're able to buy trees for the next 10 years, and you don't have to store it. Right, so you think it's a better, it's a better deal all around to go with a real tree? Well, not only that, but, you know, trees, and I have, we have, our family has 1,600 acres of timber here. And the young trees, 75 years and younger, starting from Christmas trees to big, mature, semi-mature second-growth trees, they are the young lungs of the forest. Old-growth trees, you don't take in too much carbon dioxide. They don't. They're pretty well finished. Most of them are finished. But the young timber and the young Christmas trees are the ones that clean the air. So not only 
or you're not using an oil-based product, you're taking a tree. And also, when we have it out here on the 160-acre of our 400-acre farm, this affords a beautiful environment for deer and bear and grouse and pheasant and cougar and all these things. And we've got a nice place to be, and we've got a nice big reservoir there, which all these wild animals can okay. avail themselves to fresh water at any time. So okay. it's a utopian situation. Okay, Mike, last question for you. The tree that I bought in the weekend was, you know, it was probably the more cheap, cheaper tree on the lot. I believe it was a, a Douglas fir. Is that yep. the most, uh, is that the most popular Christmas tree species? The most popular tree, I think, is a noble fir, but they do take a long time to grow. A long time. They take about 12 to 15 years. But the, the Douglas probably outsells everything 75% for the price. But, you know, it pains me that people are gouging people, and they are, because believe me, I know the growers. I know guys that produce down there in Oregon 500,000 trees a year, and I'm talking to them all the time. And I know their prices have not gone up more than 10%. So if these people in the Lower Mainland are charging those kind of prices, they're just gouging you something fierce. Okay. I'd like to knee All them right. in the nuts. <laughs> Can I say that? Well, you just did. Okay. So, okay. okay, Mike, thanks for, thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thank All you. right, Mike, go-go there. Uh, <laughs> All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about some of the flood damage in uh, British Columbia and the efforts to help people and get relief to the most stricken areas. My guest is Bradley Friesen. Bradley is a helicopter pilot. Uh, you may have seen some of his incredible videos of some of the damage from the flooding. Please give me a follow on Twitter where I just tweeted out his incredible video of Highway 8. Uh, that went viral uh, a little while back, and I'm uh, pleased to welcome him to the show. Bradley, thanks for taking the time. Hey there, how you doing? I I'm doing good, Bradley. Thank you for being here. Uh, congratulations on everything you're doing. I've just been checking out. You've got an incredible YouTube channel. Uh, your Twitter feed is amazing. Uh, the flyovers you've been doing in your chopper are incredible. L let me ask you first, Bradley, about that video that went kind of viral of High Highway 8. Which basically, it's a video of a highway that's not, no longer there. Like it's just, it's just gone. It's in pieces. A lot of it's just been washed away. What What did you think about that when you were flying over Highway Eight there? Um, you know, I hadn't heard very much about Highway Eight until we uh, went in there to help a, a small farm, and that was my first time. Like no media pictures, no anything. That was my first time seeing it live, and it was uh, it was it was pretty shocking in terms of like. I hadn't flown up the Coquihalla. I hadn't flown up any of the routes. We just come over the top, so we didn't see really any damage until that point. Yeah, and when you like, you just got it. You know, it's difficult to describe in words what these these photos are like that you've taken. I encourage people to check it out online. But you're flying over this thing, and the highway is uh, large sections of it are just gone. Like they're just washed away. Uh, like, can, how do you describe? Like, is it was that the river? The river moved, or the river rose up over the highway and just flushed it away? Exa yeah, exactly. I, from what I understand, is um, you know the river was never built that close to the highway, you know, yeah. and um, it was built, um, you know, for basically a two hundred year event away from the highway, and this was a greater than a two hundred year event in terms of what hit it, and it just it completely decimated um, probably 20 kilometers of road or more. 
Yeah, no, it's unbelievable footage. I encourage people to check out. Bradley, let me ask you about some of the relief efforts that you've been involved with, and it's yourself and it's other helicopter pilots in British Columbia, like like Sean Heaps. We're uh, hoping to have him on today too, but he's he's busy. He's still busy working and trying to help people. Can you tell me a little bit about what the helicopter pilots in British Columbia are doing right now? Guys like yourself who have the ability to get out there and help. Uh, to bring in supplies to people like what kind of work are you, you guys doing here uh, unfortunately you know like i i don't want to make this sound like i'm doing um a massive amount of work i've i've done 10 hours um unfortunately uh last week um it's a brand new machine for me and um i had a mechanical issue and i'm still on the ground i'm just at the airport right now hopefully getting this resolved so we can get a few more days of getting supplies into communities that are cut off um but Sean Heaps, uh, West Coast pilot on Instagram, um, he's really doing the work. This is uh, I was really hoping he'd be on here today also because uh, what he's organized in terms of general aviation in the province to help out uh, is really incredible. And it's something that needs to be uh, downloaded after the fact uh, as you know, possibly a template of how especially if our government's going to be this flat footed and and and, um, you know, we're two weeks in now. And I'm still trying to figure out how to get my helicopter in the air to, to bring supplies to communities. The military is on the ground and, um, you know, the Air Force pilots, um, not one of their 412s moved yesterday. Their Chinook ran on the ground for three hours at Abbotsford. You know, they're not bringing supplies to these communities yet. And it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing that this isn't happening yet. Okay, you also were, were tweeting and talking about that on social media this week, and it, it got a lot of attention, Bradley. Can can you expand a little bit on that? Like, so you're saying that some of this military hardware that's now on the ground in British Columbia, military helicopters. I mean, we saw some uh, we saw some military helicopters earlier in this crisis involved in some very dramatic rescues of people. Uh, but you're saying that what they, these choppers should be flying continually to bring supplies in, and they're not doing it. Is that your point? Yeah. Essentially, yeah. I mean, the um, 442 Squadron, uh, Comox, they came in, they did amazing work getting people off the highways. You know, um, uh, the, the thing with the military is they have to be tasked. And this isn't a military failure. This is a government failure. The military is here to support the government, and the government is not tasking them. Um, there's communities like, um, uh, sorry, uh, Nick and the Nation. They're, they're completely cut off on both sides of the highway. Uh, it's wiped out um, Bunker Hill. It's wiped out, you know, Litton burned down right down the road from them. So their town's gone. Roads are washed out on each side. The bridge onto their property is also washed out. They're stuck on their piece of land for minimum six weeks, probably eight, provided nothing goes wrong. It could be longer. Um, they've got, you know, um, cattle. They have horses. They have goats, sheep, pigs, you know, like they need supplies. They can't uh, really evacuate this because somebody will have to go up there to tend to the horses anyway. So bringing them supplies would be the most logical thing. Um, and, and that's what, you know, uh, Sean's been trying to organize is getting yeah. them supplies. Uh, the military is very capable of this. They're, 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 um, their pilots are some of the best in the world. Their equipment is top notch. They have night vision capabilities. I, I, I'm just shaking my head as to why the, the province and the federal government isn't taking the handcuffs off them, and they're sitting on the ground. Okay, speaking to Bradley Friesen, he's a helicopter pilot uh, who's been doing some help with the relief efforts. There's other helicopter pilots who are pitching in here to help people. 
hey Bradley, I, like I take your point that your your chopper is on the ground right now for some for some maintenance. Uh, other these other helicopter pilots who've been pitching out, like your friend Sean, like are yeah. these guys are these guys doing this out of their own pocket or are they getting some they getting some funding? The uh, the seat community has been absolutely amazing. They are wow. um, raising massive amounts of donations. They uh, one last last week we had twenty four pilots or Sean organized uh, twenty four pilots to haul um, thirty thousand pounds of supplies to Merit and then organized myself and another helicopter to be distributing those to um, small communities that are cut off and and um, First Nations um, and you know. Again, we're a good stopgap, but we're not a sustainable solution. But, you know, the, the Sikh community, I can't give them enough credit for uh, what they've been doing throughout this entire uh, entire event. Yeah, what are the worst hit areas, in your opinion, that need the most help right now? The interior, well, obviously, everybody sees the pictures of the lower mainland. It's very yeah. accessible for, um, for, you know, news cameras and, and people to, to share. Um, the interior is um small communities you know um guys like i have a buddy uh hunter helicopters and they've been flying supplies for basically their fuel costs and you know he said i'm down to 16 hours left on my machine until i have to do my next major inspection which you know i have a twenty-five thousand dollar bill for coming every hour he flies that he doesn't get revenue is an hour that you know comes out of his pocket um you know it, it's it these communities are are trying to hire him now. And he's like, I've only got 16 hours left. You know, like I've done 20 hours of flying there at some point. It's just not sustainable. You know, yeah, do you, do you think that some of these communities, especially in the interior may have been, I don't know, like forgotten, like, like you completely say, I mean, forgotten, yeah. completely forgotten, completely like left to fend from themselves. Uh, local food banks are uh, hiring helicopters to bring them supplies. You know, food banks struggle in the best of times to just supply the people with food that need them. Now you're putting the burden of, of uh, hiring, you know, helicopters on top of a food bank. You know, that, that's, that's not fair. Yeah, okay. So what would your message be then to the, the officials out there, like government officials, military officials? You're saying, what, what, get those helicopters in the air, get them moving? Get organized. Get, you know, talk to Sean. Sean's making a list, like, you know, at some point, somebody has to come in and take over this responsibility because, uh, you know, and Sean's committed to, he's like, as long as there's need, I'm going to keep flying. And, and, you know, my machine, I just brought it up from the U.S., I lose the ability to fly it on Friday. So, like, I'm, I'm hoping for one more day of, of bringing the supplies. Yeah, speaking of Bradley Friesen, he's a helicopter pilot, very popular on YouTube, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter. Um, you you are known uh, Bradley for flying around uh, with your dog, right? Your your uh, Bentley the Bulldog. Yeah. How how's Bentley yeah. the Bulldog doing? Oh, he's sitting here beside me. He's okay. waiting for the helicopter to get back in the air. <laughs> he loves flying, huh? Oh, uh, anything that moves. He is. Uh, yeah, absolutely anything that moves. Yeah, no, it's it's very entertaining. Uh, Bradley, thank you for coming on and talking to me today. I'm very grateful to you. Yeah, I hope you get a chance to connect with Sean and hear. Yeah exactly the work that he's been doing because Sean has been um, really, really stepping up and, and the work he's done. It's been incredible. Yeah. And you too, Bradley, thank you for coming on and thanks for all the help you're doing to help the, uh, the effort you're taking to help people. I appreciate your time today. All right. Thank you. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. 
Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.